starting today, we are beginning a brand new series that's going to take us uh, actually all the way past Easter. It's called Knowing and Encountering God. And this series is going to be a little bit different than, than any series I've done before uh, because it has two parts to it that basically hinge on Easter. So leading up to uh, Easter, we're going to be talking about who God is, focusing on the attributes of God. Uh, and then on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is, of course, the event that allows us to enter into a relationship with God. And then on the other side of Easter, we're going to be talking about uh, how to have an encounter with God, why we need an encounter with God, and how an encounter with God can change our lives. Um, but today, and for all the weeks between now and Easter, before we talk about having an encounter with God, I want to make sure that we understand exactly who this God is. So we're going to be taking a, a number of weeks to just kind of still ourselves, quiet our minds, our hearts, our souls, uh, and, and remind ourselves of who God is. So uh, A.W. Tozer is a famous um, theologian, and he once said that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I believe that statement with, my, uh, with all my heart because it has proven true in my own life. Um, back in, I've shared this with you before, I guess if you're new to the church, this will be the first time you've, you've heard this. I like to kind of let people into my life every now and then. Um, back in the summer of 2012, uh, I was in a real pivotal time in my life where I was um, trying to figure out if I was going to make the transition from my career in the fire service to full-time ministry. And during that summer, every single week of that summer, I met with a counselor. And that, uh, that time in my life was, the only word I can, I can really use for it is transformative. I had a number of, of uh, close friends and family members who told me, uh, some of them kind of laughing as they said it, that they, they almost couldn't recognize the person that I was on the other side of that experience. Um, the reason for that, however, <clears throat> is not because, you know, I, I developed the seven habits of whatever kind of people or started adopting new techniques and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, the reason that that time in my life was as, as um, transformative as it was is because in and through that process, I realized that I had an incorrect view of God and that uh, really for all of my life, the problem underneath every other one of my problems was that I was trying to get to know a God that I did not see clearly, uh, which was a really um, strange thing for me to have to come to terms with because, as I've told you before, I was born and raised in this. This is all I've ever known. Born and raised in the church, surrounded by men and women of God my whole life. My father and my uncle were both pastors. Went to private school first through 12th grade, heard thousands of sermons. So I could ace the test to tell you what God was like, but what I, what I started to realize for the first time, t time in my life during that process was there is a world of difference between knowing stuff about God and personally viewing him as he has revealed himself to be. And I think that's where so many people, Christians and non-Christians, live their entire life, <clears throat> where you're not experiencing real spiritual vibrancy, you're not experiencing real transformation in your relationship with God, even though you're, you're going through the motions, you're attending the prayer, you're, 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 you're using the means of grace at your disposal, but the issue underneath every other issue is that you're trying to get to know a God that you don't see clearly. <clears throat> That's what began to change in my life at that summer, and when that changed, everything else did. And I am so not trying to tell you that I'm the finished product <clears throat> or that I never have bad days uh, or, or that I always see God perfectly clearly now because I think that's something that needs constant recalibration in our lives. But I will tell you this. Uh, 
the only reason I have the marriage that I have, and I really do believe I have a great marriage, the only reason I have the family that I have, and, and the only reason that I'm your pastor is because that, of that period of time in my life when my view of God began to get reset. That's how important this is. Uh, that's what A.W. Tozer's quote is all about. Um, and, and just to show you that, that this is you know, right from the book, uh, this is actually exactly what the Bible teaches as well. <clears throat> in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, such an amazing statement. It says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. And listen to this. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. <clears throat> what the Word of God is telling you in no uncertain terms there is if you want to see transformation in your life, that does not come from the outside in. That doesn't come from adding behaviors and mindsets and daily affirmations and whatever else to your life, good and helpful as those things may be. If you want to see your life transformed in ways that you would hardly believe, that comes from seeing God clearly. That's what, that's what today and every teaching uh, between now and Easter is all going to be about. And I actually, I didn't say this to the 9 a.m. because I don't think I really realized this uh, in, until after preaching the 9 a.m. service, but, but really, my desire for this series is that, um, that this whole series would be a sabbatical for us and, and for whoever, you know, happens to be here in person or online. And saying that, I know that, you know, you can't pause everything in your life and you still have responsibilities and things like that. I just think it's important to say we have a lot going on right now. You know, Putin is doing what Putin does, and gas prices are doing what gas prices do. And when that's all over and done with, there's going to be another crisis and something else that we can't get away from on the news and social media that makes us worry and get depressed and anxious and all that kind of stuff. My desire for this series is that we could just come together and that you would let go of whatever you're carrying around uh, and that you'd be able to drop that, you'd be able to drop your guard, and we could just sit in the presence of God, let him be God, let us be his children, and let him heal us and work on our hearts. That's what I would love to see in this series. And so specifically today and in all the weeks leading up to Easter, um, I, it, would, it would just mean, it'd be an answer to prayer. If you, would see, if you could see God more clearly than you ever have, and experience change in your life like you never thought possible. That's what this is about. And so with that being said, it sort of raises the question, where on earth do you begin with a, with a topic as expansive as the nature of God? Where, where do you, we could talk about this for the rest of our lives, obviously, and not exhaust it. Um, but what I thought would be the most appropriate place to begin, starting today for the next five weeks about who God is, <clears throat> is first and foremost, I wanted to talk about the knowability of God. <clears throat> which I'm not even 100% sure is a word. So what I mean to say is today we're going to talk about the fact that God is a God who can be known. <clears throat> and to show you what I mean, we're going to spend some time in um, 1 John. I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 2, which says this. What was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we've seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. 
If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children... I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is God's word. So the writer of of this letter is, um, it's the Apostle John. When he wrote this, he he was an older man, Uh, basically staring down the barrel of um, the last leg of his race. At the time of writing this, he was the last remaining apostle alive, meaning he was the last one of Jesus' hand-picked, personally trained messengers that we call the apostles. And there's two kind of amazing statements that John begins this letter with. The first one uh, is that he himself had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He said uh, that he personally saw Jesus with his eyes, his own eyes. He personally heard Jesus with his own ears. He personally touched the man who was God with his own hands, who he refers to as the word of life in his intro here. But the second thing that he says after that in verses two and three, he says that the whole purpose for telling you, the reader, what he's seen and what he's heard is so that you, the reader, might enter into the same life-changing fellowship with God that he himself had. That means that, that John's desire in writing this is that you would have exactly as, as personal, exactly as intimate, and exactly as life-changing an encounter with God as he himself did, who personally got to walk in the footsteps physically of Jesus Christ. And so the, the, the premise to, to John's um, Uh, John's first epistle here, and it's why I wanted to spend time in this particular text with this topic. The whole premise to this letter is that God is not what so many people either consciously or subconsciously believe God to be. The whole premise to this letter is that God is not some unknowable, uh, indefinable, distant, detached, far-off force in the universe that kind of just spoke us into being and now is kind of letting us run out the clock apart from his intervention. The whole premise to this letter is that the God of the universe, the God who made you, the God who entered in human history, that that God is a God who can be known. And you personally can have life-changing, ever-deepening fellowship with him. And so based on that, I just want to go over three kind of broad ideas uh, found all in these first verses that we read today. Number one, I'm going to look at what fellowship with God is, what we're really talking about when we're talking about what fellowship with God is. Number two, what that looks like. So it'll kind of be like a diagnostic tool to tell you whether or not you actually have experienced and are experiencing fellowship with God. And then thirdly and lastly, we're going to talk about why we can have that and how we can have that in even greater, deeper, more life-changing measures. What it is, what it looks like, how to get it and get more of it. So the first question that I want to answer today is, number one, what is fellowship? What is fellowship with God? The Greek word that John uses here that's translated fellowship is, is the word koinonia, And it's actually a very general word. You're not going to get a lot out of it by just kind of reading the different definitions of it. But what's really helpful is that specifically in this first chapter, 
John attaches the concept of fellowship with God to some other key ideas to shed light for us on what exactly he means. For instance, um, one thing he attaches the idea of fellowship to God, or fellowship with God with, is this concept of walking. That's why down in verses 6 and 7, he says that having fellowship with God is exactly the same as walking with God, Uh, which of course then leaves us with the question, well, what does walking with God actually mean? And what I'd like to do is offer you a three-part definition to that question that sounds probably really convoluted on the front end, and then we'll take some time kind of walking through the different aspects of it so that we can get on the same page. So here's a not-so-clear-sounding definition to walking with God. Walking with God is, number one, an experience of the heart that leads to a singular devotion that is based on objective truth. One more time, it's an experience of the heart that leads to a singular devotion that's based on objective truth. So let me walk through all, all three of those ideas. First off, it's an experience of the heart. Just think of it this way. When you go for a walk with someone, which, you know, walking with another human might be the oldest expression of relationship that people have expressed ever since we've been around. Ask yourself, when you go for a walk with someone, why do you do it? And I'll tell you, it's not because it saves time. When you wind up walking with somebody, it almost always costs you more time than it would have had you just gone alone. It's not a great exercise. There's you know, plenty better ways to burn calories. It's not efficient in any way, shape, or form to walk with people. There is, when you go for a walk with someone, there's really only one reason that you do that, and it's, so, it's because you are so captivated by and interested in that person that you're walking with uh, that you just want to know them more. That's, that's why you go for a walk with someone. And so in Scripture, when God both commands and invites people to walk with him, That's God's way of unapologetically saying that he does not desire your relationship with him to be some cold, um, mechanical, dead, obligatory, lifeless ritual that you go through over and over again because you have to. Walking with God means uh, that your greatest desire, you're spending time with God because your greatest desire is simply to know him more. So a a few months ago, if you were here, I gave a teaching on the Holy Spirit, And in that teaching, I, I read a quote to you that came from, uh, it was, it was from, from two people who were part of a larger group, William Holland and Charles Wesley, who's the brother of John Wesley, who founded the Methodist movement. They were a part of a small group of people who had basically a purely intellectual understanding of God, and they wanted to know, they, basically their desire was, okay, if God's real, then I want, to counter, I want to encounter him in a life-changing way. So they got together, and they started seeking him, and reading, and discussing, and praying, and William Holland and, and Charles Wesley got their hands on Martin Luther's commentary to the letter of Galatians. And at the beginning of that commentary, he summarizes the entire uh, message of Galatians, which if, if you've read Galatians, it probably is the most encouraging book in the entire Bible. And William Holland recorded for us what happened to him that night when that preface was read, he understood the gospel, and for the first time in his life experienced fellowship with God. There, and when you talk about that it's an experience of the heart, this is exactly what that means. He said, there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior And when I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. That's what walking with God is. 
You know, it, it's more than just this intellectual, I think about them from time to time, and it's certainly more than an obligatory, yeah, I go to church and I read my Bible because that's what you're supposed to do. It's something that pierces you to your heart and lifts you up out of your present circumstances. But the second part of this definition is it's, it's an encounter of the heart. Secondly, it leads to singular, a singular devotion. I don't, I don't think I need to belabor this point, but I wanted to at least touch on this. Uh, the funny thing about walking down a path is you can only walk down one path at a time. You know, you can't divide your body into several parts and kind of try out a number of different paths at once. And so when the Bible talks about walking with God, it's talking about your heart being so captivated by God that you, that you now, you know, just like every part of you walks down a path when you walk down a path, uh, it, it's an encounter with God that leads to a singular devotion where from that moment forward, you bring every part of your life, every part of your being into the presence of God rather than trying to hide and keep parts of yourself from him. So first off, it's an encounter of the heart. Secondly, it leads to a singular devotion. But thirdly, uh, and this is so important to talk about, it's based on objective truth as opposed to uh, you know, your kind of intuition and, and feelings alone. Here's what I mean. If, if you look at the structure of the first four verses, uh, it, it is, it's crystal clear. John begins this letter by saying that he wants you, the reader, to have a life-changing encounter with God, life-changing fellowship with God, which is what he himself had. Uh, but, but then he tells us what his fellowship with God and what all life-changing fellowship with God needs to be based on. So what does it need to be based on? It's the truth. If you read verses 1 through 4 again, it's almost redundant how often John says, we actually heard this man who was God. We actually saw him. We actually touched him with our own hands. What John is saying is we didn't make this up. We didn't construct a God of our own understanding and then experience life change because we created this God that we then had an encounter with. What he's saying is if you want to have a life-changing encounter with God, if you want to have life-changing fellowship with God, then you need to accept him as he is rather than trying to decide for yourself what you think he should be. And as, as elementary as that might sound, every single one of us, the human heart, most naturally tries to do that. Every single one of us tries to construct our image of God to, to, to kind of make God in our own image. And what we, what we inevitably gravitate toward is, is worshiping and serving and knowing a God who thinks like we think and agrees with everything that, that you know, we, we hold most strongly to and he votes like us and he'd never, he'd never really tell us to love the people that we don't want to love or, or do something that we really don't want to do or give up something that we really want to hold on to. Every single one of us does that, and actually the Bible would say that if you're not aware of your own heart's proclivity to do that, you just don't know your own heart very well. So I've, I've talked about this time in my life before, but uh, back when I worked at Hollister in the Marley Station Mall, I, I still can't say it without <laughs> smiling. It's just the shame falling off my face, I guess. So when I worked at Hollister in the Marley Station Mall, I had this manager, and we would, um, had a really cool relationship, and we'd talk about the big things of life. And on one occasion, he asked me, if as a favor to him, I would work late. I'm going to go ahead and put work in quotes here. And I said that I would do this. However, I said as a favor to me, I want you to read Romans. Sucker punch evangelism. Uh, and he agreed. And so I, I, had a, I had a hardback copy of the New King, J New King Jimmy version of the Bible in the back of my 96 Pontiac Grand Prix, which I remember fondly. <laughs> hey, got some Pontiac brethren in the house this morning. Praise God. Uh, no idea what happened to that car, but not the point. Not the point, Ryan. Focus. So I gave my manager this Bible, 
And uh, I didn't want to be too pushy with it, so I, I kind of, you know, let off the gas for a few days, circled back. Uh, let's circle back to that. Circled back a few days later, and, um, and, I, and I asked him, what would you think? And he said, I didn't make it out of the first chapter. And I asked him why, and he, he, because he read something he didn't like. Um, and so that was it for him. That was the end of the line. That was the end of, of reading. That was the end of seeking. That was the end of all that. And that, I bring that story up because that is, um, that's kind of a hallmark of the modern way of interacting with God, that I will pursue God. I will entertain the idea of God. I will kind of tiptoe into the presence of God until he says something that I don't like, and then I'm out of here, which I just have to point out, is it not a little bit, what's a polite way? to say this. I should have had this planned beforehand. Is it not a little unrealistic, there it is, unrealistic to believe, for, for me to believe, that if there is a, an all-knowing, omnipotent, transcendent being that stands above all culture, is it not unrealistic for me to not assume that, that a God like that is at least occasionally going to say something that I don't like or don't understand? I mean, that's, that's either a very low view of God or a very high view of myself. But I say that to say what my, what, what my manager wanted evidently was a God who would never challenge him, who would never say anything that he didn't like or didn't understand or couldn't accept or wouldn't be offended by. The problem with that kind of God, and, and I say that saying, I, I think at least a part of all of us wants a God like that. Nobody likes being challenged and called to repent and have to painfully rethink your life and repent and all that kind of stuff. But the problem with that kind of God that never challenges us or, or knocks us down or rebukes us or whatever is, is first and foremost, that God's not real. He's just a projection of ourselves. And therefore, that God cannot help us, that God cannot transform us, that God cannot heal us, that God will be of absolutely no use to us in this life or in the next life. Uh, and, and again, before it sounds like I'm beating on my manager and you know, we all start looking down on him, we should humble ourselves and we should all admit that we all have a tendency to do that, to construct God in our image rather than accept the fact that we, in fact, have been made in his. And so I say all that to say, and this will bring me to the end of my first point, I say all that to say that, just something to consider here, there were plenty of things, plenty of things that Jesus would have said, done, and called John to do that as a first century Jewish man he wouldn't have liked, he wouldn't have understood, and he would have been offended by. But writing as an older man nearing the end of his life, I am so positive that what John would say to all of us, if he could speak to us today, he'd say, I am so glad that I accepted Jesus as he was instead of trying to make him what I thought he should be. Because if I had done that, if I had done that, as easy it would have, as, it, as it would have been, I would have never had the life-changing fellowship with God that I've experienced since the day I started walking with him. And so first and foremost, when we talk about fellowship with God, when we talk about walking with God, that means having an, an encounter of the heart that leads to a singular devotion that's based on objective truth. And I'll just say, if you haven't had that, if you don't have that, then according to the Bible, you're not a Christian. But the letter known as 1 John was written to tell you that you can experience that, and if you already have, you can experience it in deeper, greater, more life-changing ways. That's what fellowship with God is. Secondly, what is fellowship? What does it look like? Uh, and, and basically, the question that I'm asking here is, and I think this is about as relevant a question as you can ask this side of eternity, how can you know that you know God? 
I mean, Scripture says that our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? It means it should not surprise you if your heart's lying to you and hiding things from you or presenting a false reality to you. So the question is, how can you know that you actually do have what John's talking about, that you have fellowship with God? And although we could spend years talking about that, I just want to pull four answers to that question out of this text, four pieces of evidence that are a sign that you actually have fellowship with God. The first one, number one is this, uh, a changed life. Verse 6 says, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and are not practicing the truth. Uh, As long as I have been a pastor, I have had a recurring nightmare throughout my life. This is not a joke, this is real. Since I started preaching, I have um, at random intervals had a nightmare in which I um, overslept and was late for a service that I was supposed to be preaching at. And on more than one occasion in my life, uh, I have sat bolt upright in my bed yelling because I was so convinced that it was real. By the grace of God, He has saved me from that nightmare becoming a reality up to this point in my life. But as a thought experiment, let me ask you to consider What if my nightmare had become a reality today? Uh, What if I ran in here halfway through the service, threw on the old country music microphone that I'm sporting right now, and I said, hey, I'm really sorry that I'm late, but I can explain. And imagine if I told you that this was the reason I was late. Uh, I was driving in, I got a flat, I had to pull over to the side in 97. And while I was changing my tire, I looked up, I was almost done, and and I looked up, and wouldn't you know it, an 18-wheeler doing 70 miles an hour was coming straight for me, hit me right square in the chest, knocked me down the side of 97, super inconvenient. So I had to pick myself up, dust myself off, get back to the Jeep, finish changing the tire, wheeled it on in, and uh, and so I'm sorry, my apologies, I think you can understand though now why I'm late, let's begin. There's not a person in their right mind that would believe a story like that for one simple reason. We all know this. We all know that what I'm about to say is universally true. When you come into contact with a powerful object, there will be evidence, right? So let me just, with that concept in mind, uh, let me ask you to ask yourself, what do you think is more powerful? An 18-wheeler doing 70 miles an hour or the risen Son of God who overcame the power of the grave and Hebrew says is upholding the universe with his powerful word? According to Scripture, yeah, that was, you, you like that, you like that. I've been saving that for four weeks. <laughs> so the so point is, that's all John's saying here, that you can't come into contact with something as powerful as the risen Son of God and not bear evidence. He's saying in verse 6, very simply, if your relationship with Jesus has not changed your life, there's no reason to believe you have one. Pretty sobering thing to say. But as simple as that sounds, let's get a little bit deeper here, and I want you to pay real careful attention to what John does not say. I think that's a helpful way if you're trying to figure out what a verse means sometimes, and it just seems like there's really not a lot to it. Ask yourself what the verse doesn't say. Here's what verse 6 does not say. It does not say, if we say we have fellowship with God, yet we don't go to church. Uh, If we say we have fellowship with God, yet we don't give money. Uh, If we say we have fellowship with God, but we, we, we don't read our Bible and pray regularly. You notice John does not tie this to any particular moral activity. He simply says, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we're kidding ourselves and the change in our life is not real. Now, that, that phrasing it, it is, it is of incredible importance because in the Bible, walking is a metaphor for life, and it's a really helpful metaphor because when you're walking, no matter what else you're doing, when you're walking, there's always a direction that you're moving in. 
And so what John is saying here, when he refuses to tie the evidence of Christianity to a particular surface level activity or behavior, but instead talks about this concept of, of how you walk, what John is saying here is that if you really want to ask yourself whether or not you have a genuine relationship with God, if you really want to know the truth about whether the change in your heart is real, don't look at the things that you're doing. Because people go for, you know, lots of people have some sort of crisis in their life that leads them to, to, to modify their behavior in seemingly radical ways, and yet they're the same person. It's just a different, you know, coat of paint on the fence or whatever, insert analogy that you like here. So what John is saying here is if you want to know whether the change in your life is real, don't, it's not enough to look at the things you're doing. You have to look at the direction in which you're heading. And so he's, he's dealing with something deeper than surface-level behavior here. He's talking about uh, your motivations for why you do anything at all. And, and more than anything, he's talking about your trajectory in life. This is something that's so important. I think this is so incumbent on Christians to talk about over and over again, especially in the culture that we live in, because what John is explaining here is that Christianity is not what a lot of people think it is. And even Christians, I think, fall into the trap of thinking it is. Christianity is not moralism. Christianity is not, I used to be a bad person that broke the rules, but now I'm a good person that keeps all of them. Jesus Christ himself said that's not at all the kind of kingdom that he came here to build. That's why, and this has to be one of the top five offensive things Jesus said. He said tax collectors, thieves, and prostitutes were entering his kingdom, the kingdom of God, ahead of the most morally upright people in his day, the religious leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees. If there's a statement alone that made Jesus unpopular with those people, it had to be that. But what Jesus was saying is, I didn't come here to make bad people good. I came here to make dead people alive. There's a, there's a fundamental change that should happen in a, in, a, in a person who's collided with Jesus Christ or with whom Jesus Christ has collided that breaks you out of either licentiousness or legalism, immoralism or moralism. It's something different altogether. That's what this belief system known as Christianity is. And so John's dealing with something deeper than just our surface-level behavior. And when he talks about walking in darkness... Darkness in Scripture, you see it a lot in Proverbs, is just a metaphor for a distorted life. A person who is in darkness is a person who is unable to see reality because they've made something other than God the center of their life. They've made something other than God is, is their functional hope or, you know, what they're counting on to give them meaning or purpose or satisfaction or whatever it is. And so because they've settled, they've centered their, their life around something that, that, that is uh, only safe for God to occupy, they're headed for ruin. And so just based on verse 6 alone, the question that this would have you and I ask ourselves is not necessarily what kind of things am I doing, but what kind of person am I becoming? If you want to know whether or not the change in your life is real, the question is, and you know, obviously you're not going to see it day after day, maybe not even month after month, but year after year, the question is, would the people in your life say that you're a person who's, who's more able to love, are you more loving towards people, even, even people that aren't particularly lovely? You know, are, are you quicker to forgive? Is, is bitterness dissolving, you know, in, in your life? Are, are you able to have more buoyancy even when, when life's not going your way? What kind of person are you becoming? Has Jesus legitimately altered the fundamental trajectory of your life? That's the first piece of evidence. Secondly, is something that I have, have uh, termed a spiritual self-awareness. I'm, I'm going to read verse 8 to you, but before I read this, I just want you to consider, John's writing to an audience that is mostly already Christians. He's writing to an audience of people who have already accepted that they're sinners who need a Savior, and they've prayed some kind of prayer of repentance, giving their life to Jesus. And yet John is writing to those people, and here's what he says in verse 8. If we say we have no sin... We're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So 
Let me tell what was, at least initially, uh, about uh, um, a pretty painful episode in my life that was incredibly disorienting and confusing, and hopefully in telling this story, it'll shine light on something somebody's going through. Back in, in 2016, I remember it very vividly, I, it was the beginning of that year, I knew that I had to change the way that I was spending time with God. Uh, everybody who enters into ministry full-time thinks man, this is amazing. I'm basically getting paid to spend time with God. I'm going to have this amazing, vibrant relationship with God. What I'd been doing prior to that point in my life was basically using my sermon prep time as my time that I spent with God personally. And what became apparent to me is that that just doesn't work. Because what was happening is instead of, you know, reading my Bible and praying simply to enter into the presence of God, you know, so that I could just be with my father, it, it was almost becoming like a... Like a um, like work, like a job that I was doing for somebody else. And so I, I realized this, this just, it's not going to work anymore. Maybe it never did. And I knew I had to change things. So I got my hands on a book. Uh, it's a year-long devotional through the book of Psalms called The Songs of Jesus, which I still use to this day and has absolutely been revolutionary in my life in, in a number of ways. And that book is really designed to teach you how to kind of dig into the Psalms and pray through them, kind of bring what's going on in your heart into the presence of God in a way that really, you know, changes you. And so I was ecstatic to see what, did, I really felt like God kind of put this book in my hand. I don't know if you've ever felt like that, like it was exactly what you needed at the time. And I was really looking forward to how this was going to change me and, and you know, bring this newfound vibrancy to my, my walk with God. And so I was getting up every morning and I was digging into these psalms, and I was going through the activities and all this kind of stuff. I was about three, maybe four months into that process, and I woke up one day, and I could honestly say that I felt further from God than when I had started. Uh, very discouraging to me, very disorienting to me, because what happened was I, three, four months into this, I had become um, personally and painfully aware that the self-centeredness in me what went a lot further than I thought it did. It was a much larger problem than I had, you know, uh, believed. Um, and, and, you know, I, I guess I could have said that, you know, four months earlier, but to experience that personally, that was really unsettling. And, and what I realized was that while, sure, a part of me was spending time with God because I love God and I wanted to spend time with my Heavenly Father, what I realized that, that uh, 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 in addition to that, a part of me that was a lot larger than I wanted to admit was spending time with God because I knew that, that doing so would make me a better husband, make me a better uh, father, make me a better pastor, and, you know, help me feel better about myself. And so what I was coming to terms with was that I was networking God. You know, I was using God as a means to an end, which is a terrible thing to do to, to another person, let alone the God who gave you breath. And I mean, any of us would be nauseated if we found out that somebody was spending time with us simply because they got something from it. And here I was, I, I, I was doing that for God, or I was doing that to God. And so I was three, four months into this process that I thought, you know, by this time, I'd be ready to fill out the bathtub and walk on water. And here I was, I, 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 I had this painful realization, I couldn't even pray and read the Bible without at least partly self-centered motives. And so with that realization, I started to ask myself, okay, so are there, are, are there actually people out there that just perfectly love God? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I started to wonder, are there people out there that love God like that? And I, am I not one of them? Do I not have the ability to do that because I'm not really saved? You know, and my mind started going all these weird places. But the point is, I started to question my salvation. Now, keep in mind, 
I was a pastor at the time. Who was I supposed to talk to about that? I mean, I'm, I'm putting messages together on Monday morning so that somebody else can have an encounter with God, and I'm really wrestling with, Ryan, ha have you even been there? Or are you talking about something you know nothing of? And as discouraging as that was to me, as disorienting, as unsettling as that was to me, in, in light of what, what God's Word is saying here in 1 John 1.8, what was happening in my life is exactly what should happen in a person's life if they legitimately have fellowship with God. When John says, and, and again, I mentioned this on the front end, he's writing to people who have already accepted that they're sinners who need a Savior, who have repented and given their life to Jesus. When John says, if you say even now you have no sin, that the truth is not in you, what he's saying by implication is that one of the telltale signs, one of the purest hallmarks that you legitimately have a vibrant, organic relationship with your Creator is that you're becoming more and more spiritually aware of all that needs to change in your own heart. In other words, pride that, that you know, you, wasn't really on your radar before, now you can't ignore it anymore. Now you see it exactly for what it is. You know, self-centered tendencies that you've kind of normalized and all your life you'd said, hey, that's just who I am, take it or leave it. Now you, you can't do that anymore. Now it, it, it really wounds you. It bothers you. you. You know, it's like a thorn in your flesh that you have to do something about. It's, it's this process where that sin that you thought you had a good handle on in your life, you zoom out and you realize you've just been tapping on an iceberg with a chisel. And I, I, I want to say that kind of like as a, as a helpful caveat here, I, I realize that this is not, this doesn't make Christianity sound marketable, does it? Uh, I didn't expect a, a round of applause when I told people, hey, you can know you're growing in God if you realize how much ugliness there is in your heart and that it goes deeper than you thought it did. And so I'm sure that there's, there's some people listening to this who were thinking, you know, I actually feel bad about myself. I don't need a God who knows everything about me to show me more of that. But let me just say this, if that's where any part of your mind goes, and, 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 you know, in, in a non-weird way, I think I can prophesy over your life right now, as weird as that sounds, all right? So buckle up. I can tell you right now what sin in your life is most dangerous to you personally. Now everybody's on the edge of their seat. What's he going to say? The sin that is most dangerous to you personally right now the sin that is most distorting your life right now and the sin that is most likely to ruin your life at this very moment, you know what it is? It's the sin you are the least aware of in your heart. And so I say that to say as painful as this process is of becoming spiritually aware, it's, it's, it is so helpful to remind ourselves only a God who loves you would show you everything that needs to change in your own heart. Because it's only in showing you all of those areas, those faithful wounds of a friend that Proverbs talks about, it's only in showing that to you that you can become this person of greatness, this person of character, this person of strength, this person of buoyancy, this person of kindness and love that God has called you to be, that, that you yourself actually want to be, I believe, so that you can do what it is that God has uniquely gifted and called you to do during this handful of breaths that we call life. So first off, you have a changed life. Secondly, you have a spiritual self-awareness. But the third sign is, is thirdly, you find joy in God himself. We, we, we kind of touched on this earlier when we were talking about that, that quote from William Holland where he talked about, uh, he said, you know, burdens fell off. There's a sense of love in his heart. It brought him so much joy that he felt like he was floating. Let, let, me, let me put it this way. M most people in the world right now, not in the West generally, not in the, the modern West, but in the world at large, most people on this planet will still say, sure, I believe in God. But 
a lot of those people, if not most of those people, would, if you really dig into that, and surveys have kind of revealed this, what a lot of people have when they say, yeah, I believe in God, I've always believed, whatever, is they have a relationship with God that's, that's really no different than their uh, relationship with Amazon. Meaning, uh, when they need stuff, they reach out. But when everything in their house is in order and all their needs are met, you know, it, it's radio silence. And if that's how you operate with God, that in and of itself is a great indicator that, that your heart is still more interested in the stuff you can get from God than you are from God himself. And so therefore, one of the main ways that you can know that you have fellowship with God, that you've had a life-changing encounter with God, uh, is that he himself brings you joy. It's, ne- it's no longer just about, you know, all that stuff that he's going to give you or, you, or, you know, the ways that he's going to develop you, but that you're growing in this awareness that I just love spending time with him. I just love those moments in the morning where it's just me and God and that transcendent experience that lifts me out of my worries and woes and all that kind of stuff where I just feel like I'm in the presence of my Father. That's, that's one, of the, one of the hallmarks, that that desire is growing in you. But, but let, me, let me add, I feel like this is a teaching full of caveats, but let me add another caveat here. It is, um, it's, it's incredibly easy to mistake a genuine encounter with God for just, you know, a moment of general inspiration. What I mean by that is, you know, I've been in ministry for, for uh, about a decade, and what I'm about to say, I'm sure, is something that you've witnessed in your own life. There are plenty of people who go to a, a service, who hear a song, who listen to a message, and who might even respond by walking an aisle, praying a prayer, or getting baptized, and, you know, you zoom out a year, two years, several years later, and there's absolutely no quantitative difference in their life whatsoever. How do you explain that? The way that you explain that is because while they may have had a moment of general inspiration, while they may have been caught up, uh, you know, in their emotions, while they may have experienced a momentary flood of, you know, dopamine or serotonin or whatever it was, what they did not have was a genuine encounter in the presence with God, uh, of God. And so here's the question, how do you know if you have? How do you know if you've had a real encounter with God or, you, you know, your, your mind, your heart's just kind of playing tricks on you? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a very odd-sounding answer to that question. One of the best ways that you can know that you have had an encounter with God's presence is that you are bothered by His absence. One of the best ways to know that you've been in the presence of your Creator is His absence is unsettling. It is wounding. It leaves you like a deer panting for water. So what I'm about to say I was talking to somebody after, the, talking to a few people actually after the 9 a.m. who this is exactly where they're at. And so I'm hoping that what I'm about to say is incredibly encouraging, settling, life-giving, illuminating to somebody here. When we talk about how important it is that you experience joy in the presence of God, it is exactly as important to remind ourselves that no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, no, no matter how mature you are, a man or woman of God, you will experience times of his apparent absence. I'm not talking about his actual absence. What I'm talking about is what we refer to as the dry seasons of life. The Puritans had this amazing phrase. They called it the dark night of the soul. If you, if you walk with Jesus for any length of time, you're, you're not too far from one of those. And I was talking to somebody after the 9 a.m. where they... they they, they kind of come up to me with tears in their eyes afterwards, and they said, man, that's where I am. And, and God's been so good to me. He's been so kind to me. I'm dealing with this kind of depression, and it doesn't even make sense. And so I feel bad, but then I feel bad that I feel bad because God's been so bad, and there's layers to it. And they're, they're, they're realizing, you know, I've done the same things. I attend to worship. I read my Bible. I pray. It just not, doesn't seem like it's getting me into the presence of God like it used to. That's the dark night of the soul. 
And, and if you read the book of Psalms, it is, it, it's all over the place. You read psalm after psalm after psalm. You see the psalmist saying things like, God, I, I need to hear from you. I haven't heard from you. Where have you been? I haven't sensed your presence. I need you. I'm counting on you. You've forgotten about me. I'm surrounded by my enemies. I feel isolated. Why are you downcast, O oh, my soul? And I'm willing to bet that there's, a, there's more than a few people listening to this right now where you would say, man, joy in the presence of God sounds great. I can't even remember the last time that happened for me. And if that's where you're coming from, I would say, hey, that's okay because we don't live by that. We absolutely should experience that at times in our life. If you've never experienced that, now it's time to take a self-inventory. But we, don't, we should never, based on Scripture, we should never expect every moment of our life to be like that. And so to everybody here who's in a place where you're not experiencing that, let me just ask you to ask yourself the question, does that bother you? Does the, does the apparent, does the felt absence of God, is that wounding to you? And does that leave you kind of desperately jumping back into prayer, into the word of God, into the disciplines, into the means of grace, out of this awareness that, God, I need, I'm like a thirsty person in the desert. I need you to quench my soul because I'm not going to be okay if I don't meet with you again because that's one of, the best, one of the best ways to know if you've experienced his presence is that you're bothered by his absence. <clears throat> That's the third thing. The fourth, and this will be the last one, and I, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, um, but what we see here uh, is that kind of right along with that is, is that you can know you've had fellowship with God if, if, fourthly and lastly, you have a desire for the people around you to experience him as well. Right here in verse 4 in the intro, uh, I think this is so amazing. John says that his joy, he says, my joy will not be complete. I can't, my joy cannot be completed, John says, unless you, the reader, enter into this life-changing fellowship with God that I have. I, it, it, it's, it's like my life's mission is going to be unfulfilled. My joy will only be partial unless you come to know this God like I do. And the more that I thought about that this week, the more, the more both challenging and inspiring that is to me, because I touched on this earlier. At the time of writing this, John is an old man. He has, he has seen uh, extra-biblical records tell us he saw every one of his fellow apostles die for their faith in Jesus Christ. John has watched relationships come to an end. John has been oppressed. John has been marginalized. John has been persecuted. John has, has, his relationship with Jesus has basically cost him everything that it can cost him with the exception of his vital signs. And yet here he is at the final leg of his race and he's, there's not a hint of bitterness. There's not a hint of self-pity. There's not a hint of callousness or regret or entitlement. He's saying, all I want, even after all these years, even after all he's cost me, I just want you to know this Jewish carpenter who was God named Jesus Christ. A, a pastor put it this way. I thought this was so, so helpful. He said that, that the presence of God, fellowship with God is like a fine wine. Once you taste it, you just want to pour somebody else a glass because there's something about seeing someone else enjoy it that somehow makes it even better for you. And, and so these four things, I would just ask you to take, take a self-inventory. Hopefully you have as we've been going through this. Do you have fellowship with God? Is there a trans has there been a legitimate transformation in your life? Is there a spiritual self-awareness that's leading to ongoing growth in your life? You know, do you have the ability to find joy in God even if nothing in your life is going the way that you had hoped? And lastly, is there a, is there a fervent desire for somebody else to share in that joy with you, for someone else to enter into God's kingdom with you? And as, as I say all that, everything we've talked about today is what this movement known as Christianity was originally known for. When Christianity got off the ground in the Roman Empire and in the lifespan of just a few generations, completely transformed it, all it was was a group of men and women who were known for this. 
They were a group of men and women whose transformation could not be easily explained away. All you could really say is, yeah, they've been with Jesus. That's what people said when they heard John and, and Peter speak. Yeah, I, I don't know what else to say except they've been with Jesus. You know, th- th- there was a transformation that you couldn't explain away. There was ongoing growth in their life as they were always coming to deeper understandings of how, how flawed and yet loved they were at the same time, which led to just ongoing character development. Uh, they, they had the ability, even when they lost everything, to be happier than the people who were hurting them because of their relationship with God. And then lastly, they were marked by a desire for somebody else to enter into that life-changing fellowship. So in, in saying all this, um, and this is how I'll, I'll button this last idea up and then move on to our conclusion, I'm, I'm positive that with very, very few exceptions, I mean maybe a handful, everyone who's listening to this can be grouped into one of three categories. Everyone who listens to this teaching, uh, there might be, a, like I said, a handful of exceptions. I'll get to that in a second. But pretty much everybody who listens to this teaching can be grouped into one of three categories. Number one, uh, some, some of you would say, if you were honest, maybe you've never told anybody else this, but some of you would say, I've never experienced anything like you've talked about today. Maybe you would say, yeah, I, I mean, I believe in God. Uh, you know, we got here somehow. Uh, I've always believed. You know, I've, I was raised in this. I've heard messages. I've, you know, I've never, you know, you, you, you don't go around professing that there's no God or whatever. You have some kind of belief in Him. But when we talk about uh, having a, a fellowship with God, when we talk about walking with God, if you were honest, you'd say, that sounds amazing, but I, I, I wouldn't recognize that if it hit me in the face. That's the first group. Secondly, there's, there's people listening to this who, who you would say, you know, there may have been, when I look back in my past, some of these things sound familiar. They may, there may have been a time in my life when I experienced that, but it's so long ago, I, I don't even know. I don't even know if that was real or if that was that kind of moment of inspiration that you talked about. Maybe my mind was playing tricks on me because I don't feel any different today. And then thirdly and finally, uh, there's people listening to this who you would say, yeah, I know that, that everything you've talked about today, that absolutely has happened in my life, but it's been a really long time and it needs to happen more. You know, I, I know that I've had an encounter with God, but there needs to be deeper levels of life change, deeper levels of intimacy, deeper levels of vibrancy. Unless you're in a period of time right now where you are really experiencing just a, a riding a wave of spiritual vibrancy, which that happens. That's happened to me. Praise God for those times. But most of us are not in that place right now. And, and you fit into one of those three categories. And so here's the question. How can you enter in to what we've talked about today? Either for the first time, or in a deeper and more life-changing way, how can everything that John has laid out for us be yours? And the answer is found uh, in these final four verses of, of the passage that we read today. It's in, it's in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. In fact, I, 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 I want to I state this as strongly as I believe it. If you do not understand what John is saying in those verses, specifically verse 9, if you do not grasp what Scripture is telling you, in verse 9, there will be a governor on your relationship with God. So let me, let me read this. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, or other versions, actually most versions will translate that just, which I think is more helpful in this case. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I just want to go out on a limb and say, um, you probably heard that and, and your life is not, you know, any different now. You know, there's probably not, you didn't just lose a pound of water weight weeping in the presence of God because of how amazing that verse is. Because most people don't read what that verse is actually saying. I've taught on this verse before and I didn't really understand what it was saying. 
See, most people read verse 9, uh, and, and it sounds like, you know, the, the most elementary kind of call for a response to the gospel that's ever been formulated. It sounds like it's just plainly saying, okay, if you confess your sins, then God is merciful and He'll forgive you. That's the way that this whole salvation thing works. And I just want to tell you, if that's how you read this verse, it will not change your life. Here's why. Right after that, in the first verses of chapter 2, uh, John tells us that Jesus is our, it's a word that means our legal advocate before the Father. So what John is telling us in, in the first two verses of chapter 2 is that basically Jesus Christ, this is a really, I think, um, helpful kind of like word picture. Uh, Jesus Christ is basically a cosmic defense attorney for everyone who puts their trust in him. And what he does for you as your advocate is he stands, uh, in your defense, he stands before the, the, um, the high court of God's justice for you, advocating on your behalf every single time you sin. That's what, that's what we're being told here. But go back to verse 9. If you think that verse 9 is simply saying, if you confess your sins, then, you know, God will be merciful to you, uh, then, then what, what's going to happen is you're going to kind of view the work of Jesus as your advocate. In your mind, it's going to be like, well, every time you sin, Jesus is coming before God on your behalf, and he's saying, God, I'm, you know, I, I, this is bad. Uh, I, this is a PR nightmare. I know they're supposed to represent you. They should be past all that before. They should be, you know, grown to the point that they're not even tempted by these things. I know that they blew it again, but one more time, please, will you be merciful? Please, can you just overlook that? Please, can you kind of, you know, sweep that under a rug a little bit? I don't have to tell you, that's not a very powerful image. That's not enough to change your life. Um, let me put it this way. Imagine if you were scheduled to appear in court for a crime that you committed. You knew you were guilty. Uh, and before you walk into the courtroom, your attorney pulls you aside and says, hey, I've been thinking about this, I got a plan. Um, I know that you did it. And that judge knows that you did it too, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to beg him to be merciful to you. That's not going to fill you with a great deal of confidence walking into that courtroom. And, and the point is, if that's how you understand Jesus as your advocate, you're not going to have a, a whole lot of confidence in life. You're not going to have a whole lot of peace in life. You're not going to be real settled in, in who you are in God and who God has declared you to be. But thankfully, that's not what verse 9 says, because John didn't say if you confess your sins, then God is faithful and merciful to forgive you for your sins. He said that God is faithful and just. That makes all the difference in the world. And as I explain why, let me call the worship team up and we'll close with this. When, when we talk about God being merciful to us, it was nothing but an act of sheer mercy for God to send Jesus to die for us. That was pure, unadulterated, we could never earn it, we did not deserve it, mercy. But now that... Jesus Christ has gone to the cross and paid the debt for your sin and is now ascended to that courtroom as your legal advocate. What is happening now is, is Jesus is no longer asking for mercy for his people. He's no longer asking for mercy for you. Because what Scripture is telling us right here is that once you've given your life to Jesus, and I would just ask you to try to make this as personal for you as you can, that when you have given your life to Jesus, when and not if you sin even beyond that day, when Jesus stands before the Father on your behalf, he says, Father, I know that they sinned. I know that they're not what you have declared them to be. I know that there is a, there's a lifelong gap between them right now and this glorious being that they're going to be 
when we finally finish the work that we started in them. I know that, God. There's, there's absolutely no excuse. There's absolutely no getting around that. However, Jesus would say on your behalf, Father, I'm not asking you for mercy because I paid for that sin, for every single one of those sins with my blood. My life was the payment that you received in full for every single one of their sins. And it would be unjust for you to demand two payments for the same crime. So, Father, I'm not asking you to show them mercy. I'm asking you to be just. And ladies and gentlemen, that is an infallible case that Jesus has on your behalf. Amen. 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 If you want to walk through life with confidence, if you want to walk through life freed from what others might tell you about yourself, freed even from when your own heart might condemn you, you bring that truth into the center of your own heart and you make that the operative principle of your life. What this is teaching us in no uncertain terms is that God the Father, the moment you give your life to Christ, God the Father could no sooner deny you than he could deny his own nature. And he will no sooner change his mind about you than he will change who he is. That and that alone is why the God of the Bible is a God that you can know, a God that you can walk with, a God that you can enter into life-changing, ever-deepening, ongoing, eternal fellowship with. That's the message that changed John's life. That's the message that even at the end of his life, he just wanted one more person to come to know like he knew. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. May it become more and more and more real to us. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, there's not a single one of us on this side of eternity that perfectly sees you as you are. We have minds, we have hearts that lie to us, that deceive us, that need to be recalibrated. We have lenses and paradigms that we see you through because of things we've experienced, things we carry around from our childhood, trauma, abuse, neglect, all of it, God. What we need more than anything else is to see you as you are, to simply sit in your presence and be healed by you, to get to know you in deeper and more life-changing ways. God, my prayer is that starting today, through every leg of this series, that there would be men and women that tune into this, that would begin to see you more clearly and change in ways that they never thought possible. By grace, through faith, in the name of Jesus, we ask these things with confidence and with hope. And God's people said, amen. Amen.